Welcome to Closer to Venus. I'm Johnny Burke. Today's guest is Stephen Hawley Martin. He is a best-selling author of several books, including Afterlife, The Whole Truth, Life After Death Books 1 and 2, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Stephen, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you doing that. Speaking of the book, Afterlife, The Whole Truth, Life After Death Books 1 and 2, you wrote in the Ford that your goal is to demonstrate to the reader that we are eternal, that our body will someday die, but our consciousness will live on. What's the most compelling evidence for that? Well, you know, probably I would say the most compelling evidence for me is research that's been done at the University of Virginia School of of Medicine. And they've been at this for a long, long time. It's amazing to me that there hasn't been a, a whole lot of publicity about it. They've been studying this since about the early 1960s. Some people are familiar with the work they've done on with children remembering past lives, but there are several other things that also are pretty strong evidence. For example, uh, well, actually, they say there are four things. They are that often people who have either brain damage or Alzheimer's or some other kind of problem with their brain so that it no longer functions and they're in, in like a coma right before they die. They become lucid for a little while, seem to be able to talk and convey ideas with their loved ones and so forth, and, and then they die. And this is something that apparently their research shows has been documented many times and over about 250 years in the medical literature. And in fact, in some nursing homes, for example, there are, I'll tell you that it, that it happens with a fair, fairly large percentage of their patients there. When And in fact, one of the reasons it caught my attention is it was true of my grandmother before she died. She had been in a coma, unable to speak, unable to really communicate in any way whatsoever for weeks. But right before she died, she became lucid and uh, had a discussion and talked about, she knew she was going to die and so forth, and she did. And the theory that they put forth on that is that the brain is a receiver of consciousness, and it has kind of a hold on a person's mind. But once it starts to die, it'll kind of lets go. And the uh, person does become lucid again for a period of time right before they do pass away. That's one thing. Another thing they point to, a phenomenon, is that there's often complex consciousness in people that whose brains are really, there's very minimal activity activity going on in their brains. Can't even be measured with a recorder. That happens, for example, with uh, people that have hydrocephalitis, I think it's called. You know, it's a fluid on the brain. Something like 95% of the brain can be incapacitated and yet the person will have uh, seemingly normal brain function, consciousness and able to speak and all that, sometimes even above average. Another thing is, of course, near-death experiences and everybody's heard about those. It's amazing that people who have those can often say what the doctors in the operating room are talking about, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. and recall specific information like that that there's no way they could have known because they were completely actually clinically dead at the time. And then the final thing would be the children's memories of past lives. The University of Virginia has been studying that since, uh, like I said, the early 60s. They've got over 2,500 cases on their books, and most of them have been put into a computer so they can cross-reference and uh, really get a lot of information about how that, what happens. And that was started by Dr. Evan Stevenson, right? Ian Stevenson started it. Ian Stevenson was, he was a 
actually a psychiatrist. He graduated number one in his class at McGill University in Canada. He became interested in it, and he got a grant from the man who started Xerox, gave the University of Virginia a lot of money to study this. It's a million dollars, isn't it? At least a million dollars. And so they started a, a department there called the Division of Perceptual Studies, I believe. I believe that began in either 1961 or 1962, so almost 60 years ago. Wow. And they've been studying it ever since, and they're still going strong. I've interviewed uh, people from there for my books. And so, yeah, Stevenson wrote the first book. I think he called it 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation mm -hmm. back in 1966. You have interviewed actually dozens of near-death survivors and psychics and oh, researchers yeah. and so on. When we start talking about the brain and consciousness and death, we all know about Eben Alexander's book, Proof of Heaven, where I think the main takeaway from that is that consciousness does survive death of the brain. And I think he proved that. Another book, I believe it's called Dying to Wake Up by Rajiv Party. He was an anesthesiologist who had the same type of experience. Once with a patient, the frozen man, they called him, they cooled his body with a, a cooling solution in order to do this really complicated heart surgery. And there's no brain waves. And he came to and he told one of the doctors, that was a really funny joke you told about me. And they all looked at each other and thought, how could he have known that when there was no brain activity, which again, support that theory that consciousness survives death of the brain. Well, it does. And there's another story. Uh, in fact, you could probably find it on YouTube. The woman's name was Pam Reynolds, and she had uh, two aneurysms in her brain that were inoperable in the sense that they couldn't go in without destroying the brain. So in her case, she was also exercised, but when they actually stopped her heart and drained the blood out of her body, and she, of course, was cooled down to she was able to describe what was going on in the operating room a couple of things like one of the nurses was having trouble getting the, in the vein they drained the blood out of her from somewhere around her thigh that part of the artery that goes down that way and she couldn't get get that to work so the doctor tells her to use the other side the other thigh mm -hmm. which you know was something that was that Pam related to them afterwards. She also described the uh, saw that was used to cut her skull open. The reason they had to drain the blood from her and, and really put her not just out, but come dead, was so that they could move the brain aside and fix those aneurysms. Wow. Because if they, you know, if they'd had blood going through, they'd have popped. And that'd be at the end of her. Anyway, right. she was able to survive that operation and come back and tell them what happened. And so what it really shows is that the brain doesn't create consciousness. It certainly interacts with consciousness, but consciousness comes from somewhere else. It's not created by the brain. What confuses me is that still a, a lot of doctors and people in the scientific world think that when we die, that's the end of everything. That's the end of consciousness. Why do you suppose they still believe that? There are a couple of reasons. One is our Western culture has us believing that we're separate entities, kind of like machines. Mm -hmm. We're sort of like robots that have a computer-like brain that creates our consciousness and operates our bodies, but we're totally separate from everything else. When the truth is, that's not the case. And the reason we believe that is not only because of our religious heritage, Christianity and Judaism, and even Islam, think that God is separate from, from his creation. That starts there. But back in the 16th century, before the Age of Enlightenment, 
really started going. There was this guy named Thomas Hobbes, who was a philosopher, and uh, he wrote some, you know, big books. Yes, he did. And so forth. But one of the things that he said was that if God created everything, then his creation is all there is. And that's the physical world. And some people in the Age of Enlightenment, people like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and others believed that. You know, a lot of people picked up on that. And, and what came from it was the idea that God created everything and then turned it loose and let it go. It's called the clockmaker theory. Okay. And then in the 19th century, you got Charles Darwin coming along explaining how evolution works, which what he explained to me is part of how it works. But his idea kind of gave everybody an excuse to just get rid of God altogether. The idea that we were machines that evolved through random mutations and the ones that worked kept us going and so on and so forth. So, But that's really only part of the story. I'm sure that's part of how evolution works. But what it doesn't take into account is entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, which is in a closed system, things don't get better. I mean, they, they tend to fall apart. You know, it's like your old car breaks down. You got to get a mechanic to fix it. But, you know, the Eastern religions like Hinduism, I think they were right on. They believe that consciousness was the ground of being. What animates us and where our consciousness comes from. We're really all kind of aspects of God uh, kind of that have evolved out of that, uh, that primary consciousness that created everything. Now, when we talk about oneness in the universe and just trying to make sense of everything, what kind of findings or evidence have you gleaned from quantum physicists and people in that space? Yeah, I have interviewed a couple and uh, I've read, read a lot about it. Well, there's a couple of things. One is that any quantum physicist will tell you that we are not separate, that nothing is separate. It's all one big whole that is seamlessly connected, that appears separate to us when we, when we look out from with our senses, our sight, smell, touch, and so on. Mm -hmm. But everything is one. And that's something that the mystics have been saying for thousands of years. The other thing is often quoted is the double slit experiment. And the double slit experiment, and this is one of the things I talk about in my book, uh, has to do with the fact that a researcher, a quantum physicist, somebody who's researching this experiment, what that person knows or can know affects the outcome of the experiment. It involves uh, sending protons, units of light, through two slits. When there's no measurement of where a particular slit went, what comes of that experiment is a wave pattern. That It shows that uh, light is waves. Wave pattern, when, when there are two slits, of course, you got interference so that you see dark and light, dark and light kind of image on the screen. But when they measure where the uh, which photon went through which slit, and they're all shot one at a time, it becomes a pattern of dots on the screen. So the fact that the researcher can know or knows his consciousness changes the outcome of that experiment, which demonstrates, to me at least, that consciousness cannot possibly be contained completely within the skull and the brain. It's everywhere at once. It's everywhere. It does seem that way. Speaking of religion, which definitely tends to crop up in discussions like this, there was a man, I believe it was a Dr. Reed, that wrote a book called Born Again and Again and Again, which maintains the Bible, supports the doctrine of reincarnation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that one. Dr. Reed, I interviewed him. Okay. He was a, uh, a Baptist preacher who uh, worked on the uh, in Las Vegas, and he, he was a minister to a number of the, the showgirls on the, on the Las Vegas trip. Okay. Anyway, while he was doing that in that part of his life, uh, he heard a lot about reincarnation and, and Edgar Casey and so forth. He set out to write a book refuting reincarnation and, and saying the thesis of his book was that it was not tenable to biblical studies. And in doing his research, he found the opposite, that there are a number of references to reincarnation in the Bible that may not use that word reincarnation, but that's obviously what they are. One example would be when Jesus comes upon the blind man and heals the blind man and restores his sight. And his disciples say, a teacher, a rabbi, how, how did this man become blind? Was it something his parents did or was it something that he did that caused his blindness? In other words, was whose karma was it that caused this blindness? And of course, Jesus says, well, it was neither one. It was done so that the powers of God or whatever could be demonstrated. The point is, that for the man to have been born blind and have it be his own fault would mean that he had some kind of a prior existence. That's just one of many examples. One of the people that I interviewed on this subject was is the director of the Association for Research and Enlightenment at Virginia Beach, Edgar Casey's foundation down there. And he said that there are at least 12 examples in uh, Matthew's gospel alone like that. So, But what happened is in the year 553, I believe it was, A.D., at the Council of Constantine, which was uh, a meeting of bishops in the Catholic Church to decide what scriptures and so forth would be put in the Bible and all that, because there are a number of them that were left out. There could be a lot of reasons why they did that, but up until that time, apparently it was pretty well accepted. Uh, as, as a They banned or expunged any mention of reincarnation from the Bible, or is that what happened? Yeah, pretty much that. Some say that they actually changed the Bible. They may have or may not. I don't know, but it's still in there if you look for it. If you read through the New Testament, you're going to see it, even in the Old Testament. I think it was John the Baptist, and he said, do you not recognize me as Elijah, who was a prophet who died 400 years prior? I know what you're talking about right. there. It's, it's Jesus asked his disciples, and I don't remember the verse, you know. The right, neither do I. Book and verse, but he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? Some people and, and the disciples say, some people say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're one of the prophets. And some say you're Elijah. Well, Elijah died 400 years before right. Jesus. And Jesus says something to the effect that John the Baptist was, is the Elijah or was the Elijah mm -hmm. that was predicted to come. I'm not quoting that exactly, but that was the meaning of it. So what Jesus said was that, John the Baptist was the reincarnation of Eliza. And what his disciples are saying, people think you're the reincarnation of one of the disciples, of one of the prophets. I've heard that as well. We now live in the year of our Lord, if you like, 2021. We live in a digital age. As you mentioned, there's reams and reams of evidence of near-death survivors and reincarnation, corroborated accounts of reincarnation from even Stevenson and Bob Tucker just to name a few people, why is it you suppose that the church today still will not recognize or at least admit that reincarnation is possible? Or Yeah, I think the traditional churches, like certainly Catholicism, Episcopalianism, have their 
doctrine, and they don't change that really easily. You know, it's like written down. I mean, this is what you're, you got to believe. Anybody who's raised a Catholic had to go to uh, school to learn all that, go to church school to learn all that sort of stuff, the cataclysm. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I mean, they're just not going to change it. Now, there are some churches, and I used to go to one, not as a member, but they would get me to come there and speak every now and then. The Unity Fellowship churches, they certainly believe in reincarnation, and they they use the Bible in their services, and they quote Jesus, and they quote scripture, and so on and so forth. Reincarnation is definitely part of what they believe. Aside from the Unity churches, which I think we actually have one here, the Catholic Church as an institution, they still steadfastly do not they it never comes up in in their literature that I know of. The people that I know here that go to the mega churches that are here. Anytime I bring that up, reincarnation and lives between lives and and all that stuff, they just either shut down or they tell me that's not in the Bible. I said, well, actually, it was, and up until the date that you just mentioned, and they have no clue that even happened. And I start talking about other things like Buddhism and. They think, oh, that's kind of nice. I said, yeah, did you know that Christ spent 18 years in India? No response. And I'm thinking, what are they teaching these people? Well, you know, the fact, it's very clear to me that he must have spent a lot of time in India. And I know that there's a lot of evidence of that being the fact. Mm -hmm. If you really read what he said, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He also said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done to me. Mm What is he saying there? He's saying all is one. He's saying we're all part of the Father. Every one of us is a manifestation of that universal consciousness the Hindus say we all came from. I mean, that's Hindu theology right there. Absolutely. I've always thought that they were way ahead of the curve, especially compared. And they started long before everybody else. To be cynical about it, the reason the church doesn't, one reason might be, and somebody's going to really come down on me for this. It's a matter of control. If you let people think that they're going to have a second chance to go to heaven, you know, a second chance, a third chance, probably hundreds of chances, what's that going to do to your control of that flock of people? Like, you know, you, you, you lost control. And I've heard that argument as well, but I think one major thing they're missing with that argument is the concept of karma. I've always believed, even when I was a, a young kid, that bad behavior is not free. You wind up paying for it at some time or another. And you'll appreciate this because I know that you're an Edgar Casey fan. He had mentioned in one of his books that some of the souls that were present in Atlantis and took part in the destruction and have up to a thousand lives where they're going to have to really make up for the bad energy and the bad karma. But to some people, that's a very complex issue. Yeah. Well, the idea of karma is not unique to Hinduism or Buddhism. I mean, the Apostle Paul said, a man reaps what he sows. That's definitely karma. (laughs) What else could it be? Really? You write in some of your books that our understanding of reality is coming full circle. What What do you mean yeah. by that? Well, if you think about Hinduism, for example, which was really the, the rishis, the people who created that religion, lived 5,000 years ago. And their beliefs are probably not much different than than beliefs of primitive peoples in Africa or South America, wherever they are today. The the American Indians, the idea that really all is one, that we are manifestations of this 
underlying consciousness, this what Hindus call the Brahma, Brahman, or Verda, and that that the divine really is present in everything, in all plants, all animals, all people. That is the hunter-gatherers, the primitive people's idea of what reality is. And then along comes uh, Judaism and Christianity and the fact that we have different gods like the Egyptians have Ra and the Canaanites have Baal and the Jews have Yahweh. And eventually along comes Jesus Christ and the idea of one God evolves, but that God is separate from his creation. Well, what's happening now is we're coming back full circle to recognize that the primitive peoples were right. Very true. One of my favorite parts of the Afterlife book, it describes Dr. Michael Newton's depiction of the afterlife, right? Or more accurately, what he calls life between lives. To me, when I read about that, that was just mind-blowing because that basically showed me a snapshot of what really happens when we die. And his description is that it's structured. It has classical-style buildings. There's an enormous library that houses the Akashic Records, and it's populated by souls grouped together according to the level of development, which makes total sense to me. And they might even be viewed as extended families or tribes. Yeah. Do you believe this is one of the core principles of the Afterlife book? Yeah, I think that it makes sense to me that you're part of a soul group that's a, that's on a journey together, that you're evolving. And the whole purpose of, of life and physical reality is to evolve. I believe that. And that each lifetime, you may or may not have a particular lesson that you need to learn or something or a mission to accomplish. But when you return, you return to that soul group some of whom are incarnated and others are not. Probably when you go to sleep at night, you may communicate with the other souls in your soul group. And, and I also believe that these souls in, the, in your soul group tend to incarnate together. I believe that my children are members of my soul group, that other close friends I have are probably also members, and they chose to incarnate. And it, and it may be different relationships in different lifetimes. One time it can be, you can be a son and a daughter, and the next one you can be a mother and a son. But you evolve together, and you are incarnated often together. And that's where they supposedly make the soul agreements. Let's say you're in my soul group. I pass over to the other side. I see the council, and I get a review of my life, what I did right, what I did not do right. And then it dawns on me that there's certain things I have to work on, right? right. So I, I turned to Stephen and he says, tell you what, you need someone that's going to be really tough and really drive you and push you. If you want, I will be that person. And it sounds almost too good to be true. And when I've interviewed people that are experienced doing sessions and hypnosis and, and actually perform the life between lives therapy, they're telling me the same thing. So the soul agreements to me makes complete sense, does it not? Yeah, it makes sense to me. And I think also sometimes you come back to work out karma that you've built up with another person or whatever. I don't know if you've ever read Many Lives, Many Masters. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. book was written about 30 years ago, I believe, where this uh, Catherine who's being treated by this psychiatrist who regresses her and doesn't even believe in reincarnation. But when you answer one question, she slips back into a life she had 3,500 years ago. Long story short is, She's been working out this karma and never lies with the same guy who's now her husband for all those lives that they still don't have it straight. And they still don't have it straight because it, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's interesting to note that in that experience, that space, the life between lives space, there's actually been reports of 
sometimes the elders or the spirit guides or whatever you want to call them actually even have a sense of humor. Do you find the same thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they do. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. It really is. You'll love this. There's one example where it was a younger dude and he had drug use and didn't have a really great life and basically had a review of all the things he did, some things that obviously were not good and he made people feel bad. And the spirit supposedly talked in a very colloquial sense as if to say, like, that wasn't too cool. I thought that, <laughs> I thought that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the interesting thing about the life review and uh, something that I think probably one reason that a lot of people don't want to believe this stuff because they don't want to be judged. And the fact of the matter is your life review, you're not judged. The only person that judges you is yourself. You see what you did, what you did right, what you, when you made somebody happy, and you see what you did wrong and when you made somebody sad or upset. It's a teaching. It's a teaching tool. Nobody judges you but yourself. I've heard the same thing, the same exact thing. So you have a new book out called The Secret of Life. Great title. Tell us about that and why or who should be reading it. Well, The Secret of Life is really, it's a shorter book than the one you talked about earlier, Afterlife. It's got everything in it, though, that I think that you really need to know in order to make the most of the life you've got right now, today. Because it, it gets into a little bit about the fact that you're an eternal soul, but it also explains who you are which, as we've been saying, you are a manifestation of the one life, of the creator, of the source, if you will, who is experiencing your creation. And once you really understand that and the ramifications of it, it really can open up a whole new world for a lot of people who may, may think that they're victims or that they are incapable of doing certain things. I mean, it really can change the way you look at life and the way you act toward it. So, I mean, I, I recommend it highly. I think it's something, it's an easy, quick read. It's, I think it's pretty clear and obvious to anybody who ha reads it with an open mind. It's called The Secret of Life. If you want to go to my website, uh, shmartin.com, and click on books, you'll see it there, and all you have to do is click on the cover, and it'll take you to the page on Amazon. So, it's shmartin.com, S-H-M-A-R-T-I-N. I will definitely put that in the show notes as well as the, the link to the book. Stephen, thanks very much for joining us. Very, very cool stuff. I'm sure we're probably going to do another edition of this at some point. You've been listening to Closer to Venus. I'm Johnny Burke. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.